Hey there, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. Today we have a special interview. Mayim from Ancestral Acres Farm and Garden, part of the Seeding Sovereignty Project, comes on to talk with us about farming in New Mexico on Tiwa territory. In our conversation, we chat a bit about this idea of working on stolen lands and how we can be good stewards of that land. Part of this process is around the idea of how do we build community and networks within areas where we may not be native. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this conversation. I had a really great time talking with Mayim. And if you enjoyed the episode, please give us a review on iTunes. Mayim, thanks so much for taking some time to chat with me. First, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and Ancestral Acres? Yeah, thanks so much, Andy. So yeah, my name's Mayim. My pronouns are they, them. I um, am currently living on Tiwa territory, also known as Isleta Pueblo territory. And I'm originally from Charlotte, North Carolina, which is known as uh, Catawba territory. I am a farmer of four generations. I would say five, but it skipped my dad. He didn't want to grow food. Rightfully so. I understand. (laughs) So, uh, So I'm a farmer of four generations. My grandmother was the one who taught me how to grow food and be in relationship with the land. And her grandmother taught her and so on and so forth. So it's a very, very deep practice. Hence the name Ancestral Acres Farm and Garden, because for me, not only growing food is something that's happening in the very present moment, but it's also honoring the ancestors of the past, particularly coming from the African diaspora, where a lot of us were either forced to grow food because of slavery or living conditions, as well as a lot of us also just want to continue, you know, having that relationship to food, forced or not. So that's why I came up with the the term ancestral acres, farm and gardens, not only to honor the ancestors of the African diaspora, but also to honor the ancestors of the lands that we're on in being here on ancestral Tiwa Pueblo, uh, Isleta Pueblo land holds very, very deep resonance for me. And of course, to when you think about it in that lens, it's really important to think about how, when we talk about ancestry, that that's a continuous process. You know, you look t- towards next generations and what you're leaving them, and you can very much leave them two different futures. Uh, and I'm sure that's something you you think about as well. Absolutely. Yes. So, I like to think about it almost as like a continuous timeline, like you were talking about, Andy, you know, like if we look at our lineages like a river, you know, we're just drops in that river and there's going to be water continuously being poured into that river as well. So with Ancestral Acres Farm and Garden, one of the main things is we're cultivating relationships here and we're also learning about how to save seeds, how to share seeds. And that's that way of really envisioning our future because we're growing in relationship with these plants and these seeds are going to continue to grow regardless if we're here stewarding them or not. I think it's this really beautiful idea that when we're talking about like in this context, like ancestry and passing things down, what we're doing uh, in relationship with our plants continues in the sense of like, we, we have these generations of the plants that evolve to those specific conditions. And then we pass those down to the next generation who are influenced by in both terms of like us with the plan, us with our children or the kids that we raise that will continue that practice of managing mm-hmm. the lands. There's a, a really interesting like triangulated relationship mm-hmm. that I think is really important in 
it, it, it flows both ways. You know, the, the food nourishes us and it inf influences us and our health and our children's health and the way those plants evolve in the future for the local mm -hmm. conditions. Yes, absolutely. I have this friend, Mick, who is actually from Laguna Pueblo. One of the first things he was telling me as he was giving me some seeds, he's like, you know, these seeds carry memory and it's memory from the past as well as the memory when you plant them and the growing conditions that they are going to live in. So really just like holding that memory as well as realizing that whatever sort of impact that we have on that seed, it's going to carry further too, just like our impacts that we have on our planet, right? On our children, on our waters is the continuous energy exchange. So yeah, it's, it's a way of like kind of looking in multiple directions at once, <laughs> which is a very, very humbling way to, to view growing things. Yeah. And, and our, our own transience in that process. Uh, so I want to back up a little bit. You've talked a little bit about ancestral acres. Could you talk a little bit about how that project is related to seeding sovereignty? Yeah, absolutely. So ancestral acres is in kinship with seeding sovereignty. I was put into relationship through seeding sovereignty with a dear friend who they were doing a lot of rapid response COVID related work back in, you know, early 2020, right? When everything was unfolding and they saw the friend at Seeding Sovereignty saw that ancestral acres farming garden could really fit in to response work and not necessarily rapid, but more so building intentional and genuine community in sharing food with folks. So through conversation and just scheming and figuring out what things were going to look like, ancestral acres farming garden and Seeding Sovereignty, we worked together in regards to networking with folks um, about either seeds going out or getting resources to other growers as well. Because Seeding Sovereignty has a vast network of just relationships that they have built with people, not even across Turtle Island, but across the world. So really just like getting information out to folks who may have questions about things or who may need resources. And thankfully uh, here at the farm, we, we can supply folks with just a little bit of what we have here. So it's been really sweet because seeding sovereignty has really allowed Ancestral Acres Farm and Garden to like just blossom outside of just here on Tiwa territory. You've talked a lot about this idea of being in relationship with your seeds. And I think that's really important. And I, I'm just really interested, especially also having been somebody that's a transplant there as well. How does this relate to like the fact that you are on occupied lands and how does that, I guess, impact the way you relate and work and translate the relationships you have with plants to the general public? Right. And that's a really good question, right? Because, you know, there is that humility of, you know, I'm not from here, right? Kind of a backstory. I ended up in Albuquerque by chance or maybe by fate. I don't know. Um, but my car broke down here back in 2018 and I had just finished farming in Pennsylvania. I was just at this point in my life where I I was unsure of where I was going and I had, I had been exposed to just the wonders of being in New Mexico twice prior to when my car broke down. So I was like, you know what, third time's a charm, let's try it out. And I've been here since 2018. And then going back to your question, it's really like we're talking about forming relationships. And for me, before I even get into this want and desire to organize with people, I've been in really good conversation with some friends from Isleta 
um, and other Pueblos and just really just checking in and being like, you know, how's your family? Like, how are you doing as an individual before we even get into, you know, what's it like to organize together, right? So really just trying to meet people on an individual level and just like really trying to get to know the folks on that way before we get really into the deep roots of what it's like to to organize for liberation with one another. And, you know, not seeing it as separate, right, but really just being intentional about forming those relationships before it's just getting into the work, you know? Yeah. That same way translates to the seeds and plants with me, realizing what grows here well and what doesn't do well here. I remember when I first moved here, I was like, yeah, I'm going to plant celeriac and kohlrabi and like all these things that do great in Pennsylvania. And they ended up withering and dying because it's too hot. So really having to learn from those mistakes and also realize that the landscape is completely different and to learn from the landscape, same as you're learning with and from the people, um, and then just adjusting in that way. So it's been a process and it's still continual. It's not something that's one and done. This is, this is uh, a place where I feel is home and other folks have welcomed me in and I want to be gracious and humble with just the knowledge I have, the relationships I'm building and just what I'm willing to uh, share and be a part of as a reciprocal process. I, I think it's really important what you brought up, this idea of like individualizing the relationship before trying to like make any meaningful change and just like addressing people where they are and what they need before mm-hmm. inserting yourself into a very long engaged dialogue that's existed here across North America for so long. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things uh, like this idea that you've brought up and uh, I don't want to pry further personally, but like as somebody who's a farmer in a place that is predominantly white in Massachusetts, you you have this weird dichotomy of as a, a white person, it's like, well, I, I recognize that there's indigenous people here and I want to support them and help them. But how do you do that without tokenizing them? Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. It's a really complicated and challenging space to navigate on both sides, but for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I think it's really interesting the way you've broached the subject matter. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll I'll ask if you have anything to say about that, I guess, before I continue on. Yeah, no, it's a, it's not a one size fit all answer too, but the generosity and the genuineness is there, right? Like of wanting to be in relationship with folks, knowing like that we're on occupied land. Right. And then you know, there was something that a friend was telling me the other day, right? Where it was like, you know, we're on this land and there's a lot of pain, right? But then there's also this opportunity to recognize the pain, right? Like do our history, do our digging of like what has happened, you know, and then connect with people if they are wanting to connect with you. Um, And then just see like what are like the most authentic and individual ways to show up because we don't want to dwell in pain for the rest of our lives, right? Like no one, I don't want to say no one, but not all folks really want to dwell in pain. You know, like we want to move towards collective liberation and collective healing. So it just looks different on on every different level. But, you know, I feel like just moving at this pace of slowness and and realizing that it's not all going to happen in a year, it may not even happen during our lifetime, but at least just planting those seeds of intention of wanting to move towards real and authentic change on terms that 
are beneficial for those who have been struggling, right? Like since colonization. Um, and also terms that are beneficial for this real world moment that we're living in. Because it's not going to look the same in Massachusetts as it does in New Mexico, right? But we still want to get free at the end of the day. So just trying to really be um, intentional about the ways it looks like on different landscapes when it comes to liberation and relationship building. Yeah. It's something where we all want to move forward, but it's such an uncomfortable space. Mm -hmm. Accepting that vulnerability and putting yourself out is the biggest challenge, I think. Mm -hmm. We've gotten into the very emotional part of decolonization. (laughs) Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Poor Pearls Almanac. This is Andy reminding you that if you're looking for more content outside of the scope of the podcast or sources, recommended readings, or ways to support us, you can find that at poorpearls.com. Further, we've expanded our delivery into video content on our YouTube channel, where we're able to show step-by-step how to do many of the processes that we talk about within the podcast. We have also started a Twitch channel, where we platform various folks on skills from DIY mushroom production to the various methods to keep land out of the hands of developers. Again, all this can be found at poorproles.com, and we look forward to seeing you over there. Uh, and I really had uh, intended to talk more about how the farming practices played into how some of this relationship building happens. So I, I guess I'll transition to that a little bit. Yeah. And I want to ask, like, you talked about all these plants you're growing in Pennsylvania and obviously they didn't work uh, because it's a little different. <laughs> yeah. And I want to know what you are growing and I want to know how that's been informed by traditional management practices. Right. Yeah, this has been, I remember my first year growing here, it was a lot of, I don't want to call it failure, but just lessons, right? Back on the East Coast, we tend to plant on hills, right? Like, because there's so much rain, you don't want the plants to drown, right? So, they, the water needs to cascade down the hills. Well, here in the Southwest, you plant in depressions, like almost in valleys, you know, the, the waffle farming, is that what this is? Exactly, exactly. And I'm actually going to be trying this year uh, to plant in walkways instead of raised beds, just because in the walkways will be a little bit depressed, just because of, you know, the really big intention to capture water and to keep it in the ground. So some of the plants that I'm working with are from nearby indigenous communities, nearby pueblos. So there's corn, beans. I tend to work with melons and not necessarily like summer squash or winter squash, just because the squash bugs here are pretty intense, but they tend to not really mess with the melons as much. And then I also like to work with some of the crops that are also native to my folks, to to my people of the African diaspora. So okra is like really happy here. I found out this is my third year growing okra in New Mexico and okra really loves the heat regardless. So I've been really thankful that I can still work with okra here. Sorghum. And then I feel like another plant that I'm really, really starting to develop a deeper relationship with is the New Mexico sunflower. That's a really interesting plant. I could really nerd out about it if you like, but if you just, want to, I am happy to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is it like a, is it like a sunchoke or is it like a an actual sunflower? So it's like an actual sunflower. It has multiple heads and branches. They can grow like trees here, depending on how much water they get. And 
last year, I really tried this method of planting brassicas beneath the sunflowers come summertime, just so they could provide a little bit of shade. And sure enough, the kale, collard greens, and even Swiss chard, which is not a brassica, thrived underneath the shade of a sunflower, just because there are some days where it would get up to 105. It wouldn't rain for months. And these plants just need a little bit of reprieve. So not only utilizing it for the shade, but it attracts a lot of native pollinators, um, a lot of native bees that, you know, are dying off. And then I learned from another farmer here who has lived here her whole life. She said that in the wintertime, insects will actually burrow into the, the branches and the stalks of these native New Mexico sunflowers to overwinter. So they have a little bit of shelter during the cold winter months. So you leave them standing after they're dead? Correct. Yeah. That's awesome. And then they also provide, you know, food for the birds over the winter as well. So yeah, that's just been a really sweet teacher for me, as well as just like really working with what the plant provides, not only to us as human beings when cultivating crops that need shade, but also to our our birds and our bees and other insects as well. Yeah. I I would imagine something like that would be really particularly good in like a place where, I mean, I imagine you guys must put up the shades during the summer for like tomatoes and stuff like that. And that could be like a viable alternative to like more uh, natural ecosystem enhancing shade for large amounts of crops. Yes, correct. And, and also just seeing how they can work with other plants and providing shade or even providing trellising. If you don't have fencing material to trellis plants, these sunflowers get really tall. So that provides the opportunity for like beans and other crops to kind of like climb and grow up there. Now, I believe this is a, basically you would call it like an urban farm, basically urban garden, something like that. It's, only, it's a half an acre. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. So I'm a part of this farm program that leases land to beginning and emerging farmers. And it's owned by Bernalillo County, which is a government entity, but they lease land out to young farmers like myself in the hopes that we learn how to build and develop relationships with land and water here. So it's a small space, but everything is intentionally planted to then go out to communities. So last year I was able to harvest, I think a hundred pounds of greens and roots off of, I split it. So a quarter acre was growing in annual vegetables and another quarter acre was just resting in cover crop just to build soil in that way. So, but I was able to provide a hundred pounds of greens and roots to our our local Albuquerque mutual aid that would then deliver that produce to uh, families who didn't want to leave the house or elders or folks who just needed access to food in that way. So people would just, I would bring the the food to the mutual aid drop-off spot, and then they would have folks run the food out to local community members. Awesome. I'm assuming that probably helps in building that collaborative effort within the community to see this as a meaningful project. I want to ask in terms of this process of building community, especially as somebody that is an outsider, what your thoughts are on if something like urban farms, and I know urban is much different out your way than it is up here, and I'm sure you're familiar with the differences. Is this something that people value and is it something you're seeing more value, especially in the COVID era? from people that might not have traditionally been supportive things like mutual aid groups and like local food and, and, you know, the, uh, I guess, leftist praxis versus like the average Mm -hmm. citizen. 
Well, I live in a really interesting place, Andy. So I live in the South Valley. Historically, the South Valley has been in agriculture since time immemorial. Wherever you drive, you'll see, like, sometimes it's amazing. You'll just see, like, a little, like, I don't know, four by four bed of corn, bean, and squash. You know, like, that's it. And it's like a grandmother who's been doing it since she's lived in that house her whole life. And not to romanticize it, but that's really like just what I see. So I want to say that, you know, it's been happening here for a while. It just depends on different parts of the city that you're in. But particularly in the South Valley, there's this very rich and deep community that is tied to the land here just because there's been families that have lived here for generations or our Pueblo kin are still here. And there's just uh, the land, the land still has that memory of things being grown here, even if there are new houses coming up or if there's just new things being built. So there there's always been kind of this relationship to plants and land in the South Valley. And I feel like in Albuquerque as a whole, there's really interesting coding. Like, like there'll be people who have like chickens in the city, you know, and it's like, just like a thing, you know, or you drive by a house and there's like one cow on the house. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, there's definitely been a a shift in renewal towards urban ag, but also like a lot of elders in this community who have just been doing it for a really long time too. So before it was cool. (laughs) Yeah. Before it was cool. So really like learning from them too, right? Like there's this one elder who would just like see me out in the fields and he would be like, this isn't rewarding work. Like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But like we would talk, you know, and he'd be like, do you want some water? Do you want some plums for my house? Here's some epazote seeds. Here's some beans that are climbing my house. Here's some corn seed. So really just like building that relationship with one another, which I think is just like really sweet to be a part of. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I do find it really interesting, like, especially when you start dealing with older farmers, the second they see like you have a work ethic, they're like, they're like, what do you need? I will give, I will give you the shirt off my back. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's like, it's really interesting. It's like the, this humbling experience of seeing somebody who knows so much more than you and doesn't have to do anything for you mm-hmm. and will probably have very different politics than you, but they still value what you're doing, mm-hmm. which like you said, is this really humbling experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, one of the things I do know about the area that where you live is, and not necessarily Albuquerque, but like the areas outside of it, is that there are issues in the ag community or in agriculture in general around like grazing and things like that. Mm-hmm. Has that impact, like, I don't know if you have any interest in like livestock, like chickens or maybe a cow or something. <laughs> But does that like this weird dichotomy of like you're talking about these very individualized, small, like home gardens and then like the rural space being used in a lot of ways by like inappropriate ranching. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that? Has it impacted what you guys are doing or anything like that? You know, I want to definitely speak lightly on this just because I'm not from New Mexico, but just from things that I have overheard. And then also just some of my opinions, you know, it's really around the issues of water here because our main source of water is the Rio Grande, which runs all the way from Colorado to Mexico. So that's, let's see, four states that have to utilize a river. (laughs) And and, uh, rivers aren't an infinite resource. So 
there's definitely some tension that can come just between the use of that water, right? Like if it's a small farm versus someone who's growing 100 acres of alfalfa versus someone who's growing 100 acres of chili. And there can just be like a lot of tension around that, as well as just like areas that are being grazed that are either BLM land, which is really indigenous land or you know, like all these things. So just from what I've noticed and just from my own opinion, it's really, we just have to really be intentional about our water usage here, especially with this intense drought that we're having. And the fact that we haven't had rain in a month and a lot of talk has been, this is going to be a really hard summer for a lot of us farmers. So, you know, it's really being like, are you just going to grow? And this is just my opinion. Are you just going to grow hundred acres of alfalfa just to cut and bale and send out? Or can you actually feed your animals on this and just keep it local instead of sending that alfalfa out to another state? And then like, you know, that water then is that took to grow that alfalfa is also leaving too. Right. So really just being like, yo, we have to be mindful of our water usage here because if we're not, we're, the reel is going to be dry and then we're going to be really shit luck. Yeah. I have a hard time like when we start talking about like 10, 20 years down the road, seeing how if we don't change things that the way we, especially where you live, I don't see how it can continue. And that's frightening because there's a lot of people that have every right to live where they do. And it's by no fault of their own mm-hmm. that the conditions have become what they are. Mm-hmm. And um, I was very interested in this idea of like water rights and Again, how the grazing is not only destroying places that were tra- that have these rare ecosystems that have been basically transformed in the pursuit of like growing alfalfa, mm-hmm. but also like how that ends up impacting things like local food sovereignty and food movement systems that do require large amounts of water, or at least like enough water that it's like meaningful and noticeable. Mm-hmm. You know, it can get really complicated, Andy, because you know it's. With what I've understood with water rights, it's like based on history. So the longer you've had it, the more uh, available you are to use it. But then, you know, there are some cases where people also where people just use it to to literally just grow their lawn and it's not feeding anyone. And then there are people there are communities that don't have access to running water that are just left high and dry. So, yeah, it's really bizarre and just needs to change. For folks that are interested in doing something similar, could you give a little bit of guidance on what you would suggest from your experiences, what has worked, what hasn't worked in order to push a project like this forward? Yeah. What I would offer folks who are interested in seed stewardship or seed sharing is A, like know your community, right? Like know if there's a need for that to even happen. Are people already doing that work? Can you fit in in any way? If not, adjust. And then also know your landscape too, right? Like like I was telling you earlier, if you know that you're going to be in the desert and kohlrabi isn't going to work, then try something else, you know, and try and try to really work with plants that have been here and that still feed people. So also just doing a little bit of research on the land and on what's been growing here. And also just talking to folks too about certain varieties that do really well here. And then really just being intentional and on top of 
your data when it comes to what you've planted, where it's planted, how you're managing it. Because all that, people are going to ask questions like, well, where'd you get the seed from? Or how'd you grow it? And like all these things. And it's really good to just know that relationship that you've had to that plant, as well as what it took to get to become a seed. And it's not only for your own records, but also that's a part of relationship building between you and the plant and between you and other folks that you're going to give those seeds to. And then lastly, but most importantly, if the seeds have come from native communities, then I feel like it is very dire to try to give them back and share them back just because there has been so much energy that has been put into getting that seed to where it is today despite colonization, genocide, and land theft. So I think it's really important to just continue to honor that process and and then share them back as well. And then another thing too is grow something that is going to be shared for community. Also grow something that's going to go back to the land. And then something that's also going to feed, you know, our, our insects and our birds because they're also a part of this process. They have every right to live just like we do as human beings. So I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For folks that are inspired, interested in your work, mm-hmm. where can they go find more about Ancestral Acres, social media, donation places, anything like that? Right. So you can learn more about Ancestral Acres at seedingsovereignty.org. And there's a tab where you can click and learn all about the project. And then also there's an Instagram page, Seeding Sovereignty's Instagram that updates what's happening at the farm. People could also re-email me at mayam at seedingsovereignty.org if they want to learn more from the horse's mouth about how things are (laughs) going. And yeah, just those ways are, are really, really great with learning about the farm. Awesome. Mayam, this has been great. I'm sure our audience is going to really appreciate your thoughts and experiences, and uh, I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much, Andy, for reaching out and also for the podcast. Just like the things that I've learned from it have also just shifted my perspective when it comes to just like being in relationship with land and animals and also uh, plants and water. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you.